The ancient Greek poet Archilochus famously said, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. That comes from the fact that foxes are seemingly very crafty animals. If chased, they will evade their pursuers in any number of ways, running, hiding, burrowing into small spaces, even climbing up trees. Whereas a hedgehog is a single but highly effective defensive tactic. It will curl up into a ball so that its coat, which is comprised of sharp spines like a porcupine, projects outwards in all directions, and so a, a predator is deterred from even trying to take a bite. In most cases, the hedgehog is far more successful at surviving. Archilochus's expression has been interpreted by many as speaking to the reality of common human archetypes. The famous philosopher Isaiah Berlin said that people who are foxes can be described thusly. They pursue many ends, often unrelated and even contradictory, connected, if at all, only in some de facto way by some psychological cause, related by no moral or aesthetic principle. They lead lives, perform acts, and entertain ideas that are centrifugal rather than centripetal. Their thought is scattered and diffused, moving on many levels, seizing upon the essence of a vast variety of experiences and objects for what they are themselves, without consciously or unconsciously seeking to fit them into or exclude them from a unitary inner vision. By contrast, Berlin said that, said that hedgehogs are the type of persons who relate everything that they understand, think, and feel into a single central vision, a single universal organizing principle in terms of which everything they do and say has coherent significance. As in the animal kingdom, studies have shown that people who are hedgehogs are generally far more successful in most endeavors than foxes. For example, when I was a lawyer, I sort of intuitively classified other lawyers whom I worked for or with or against as either foxes or hedgehogs. In litigation, hedgehogs had a clear goal of what they were trying to accomplish for their client, and they had a coherent strategy based upon the applicable law and the relevant facts that dictated their litigation tactics. By contrast, foxes seem to cast about aimlessly, putting tactics ahead of strategy, wasting time and energy on side issues while never really advancing their client's ball down the field. Having a fox as your opposing counsel usually meant an easy victory. Having a fox as your supervising attorney or co-counsel should have come with a mental health warning, or at least a prescription for blood pressure medication. Now, of course, as a lawyer, I fancied myself as a hedgehog, but in a lot of other ways, I was living my life as a fox. In that, since going to college, I had largely stopped practicing the Catholic faith that I grew up on, not that I had ever been that serious about it when I was younger. And while I had an interest in philosophy, I couldn't really say that I was living my life by any kind of fixed principles or objectives or sense of purpose, other than my own success and enjoyment. So when I returned to my faith in my early 30s, I did start to incorporate some of the teachings of the church into my life. But at the same time, in many ways, I was still living and thinking 
by secular standards and according to my personal preferences, rather than letting my whole being be converted to Christ. So I, I was something like the fox that I spoke of, living according to a series of disconnected centrifugal principles. But, mer- but very fortuitously, shortly after I moved to Arlington from Virginia Beach, a neighbor in my apartment building, who unfortunately was an ex-Catholic, but at least was a faithful member of a Bible church, gave me a copy of the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And there was one passage in which the demon Screwtape described a person like myself who was somewhat Christian, but whose heart still clung in large part to the allures of the secular world. It said, he can be taught to enjoy kneeling at church on Sunday just because he remembers that those next to him could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world that he inhabited on Saturday evening. And contrarywise, he can enjoy body and blasphemous socializing with his worldly friends all the more because he feels he is aware of a deeper, more spiritual reality which they cannot possibly understand. You see the idea. The worldly friends touch him on one side and the Christians on the other. And he is the complete, balanced, complex man ready to see around them all. Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, he will feel, instead of shame, a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. And I thought, oh, that hurts. In the gospel, Jesus tells us that the hedgehog is the model of Christian discipleship. That's not to say that Christians can only know one thing, but that rather everything that they know and believe and do inclines to their faith in Jesus Christ. Everything is experienced through that lens of the gospel. Christians don't fail to love their fathers or their mothers or their sons and daughters in contrast to the love of Christ. Rather, they recognize that they are able to love because Christ loves them, and that their ability to love their family or others is a reflection of how much love they are able to give to Christ first. And similarly, everything they do, from the simplest acts of kindness and charity, all the way up to accepting the cross of Christian discipleship, even onto death, is understood as conformance to the life of Jesus Christ. In God's kingdom, there is no place for the lukewarm believer, the half-hearted Christian, the fox who dabbles equally in the life of faith and the life of the world. Our Lord says to those, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. St. Paul's letter to the Romans speaks eloquently of our baptism as the organizing principle of our lives, because by it we are incorporated into Christ and his church. It says, are you unaware that we who were baptized were baptized into Christ's death? If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as dead to sin and living for God in Jesus Christ. When we commit ourselves to Christ with our whole heart, the allures of the world will take a back seat. That's not to say that we aren't still subject to human sin and temptation but that a faith fully embraced changes us, such that we can now live our lives according to a supernatural vision and hope. Pope Benedict once spoke of how faith transforms us by making the things that Christians hope for a tangible reality in our present lives, such that we can be transformed here and now. 
He said, faith is not merely a personal reaching out towards things that are still totally absent. Rather, faith gives us something. It gives us even now something of the reality that we are waiting for. And this present reality constitutes for us proof of the things that are yet to come. In doing so, faith draws the future into the present so that it is no longer simply a not yet. The fact that this future exists changes for us the present. The present is touched by that future reality. And thus the things of the future spill over into those of the present, and the things of the present into those of the future. Properly lived, our Christian faith doesn't merely make us hedgehogs in the sense of reconciling the diverse concerns of this life into a coherent philosophy. Rather, it integrates all things of this world with the promise of the world to come, a new heaven and a new earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.